Titus 3 is where we're going to look for the next two weeks. And then uh, beyond that, going into the fall, we're going to be back into Hebrews. But Titus 3 is what the Lord laid on my heart through our summer series, thinking in terms of evangelism and tying that together with a life of submission, evangelism and being submissive. Those two things go together. We're just saying about how we are utterly dependent upon the Lord and we need him and we do. And that sentiment carries right into the heart of Titus 3. Titus 3. Listen as I read verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Look down to verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, profitable for people. You know, I've read a few books in my day of Christian books. And uh, in particular, there are books that are worth about you know, an hour of time. There's books that are worth about a week of time. And then there's books that are worth a very careful and long reading where you read certain books over and over. And one of them is a book by Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, and it's entitled The Discipline of Grace. And I would commend it to all of you. He's written widely and books like Trusting God Even When Life Hurts is a really good one about the sovereignty of God. He's written a book Um, called The Bookends of the Christian Life, about applying the gospel for life. And these books are meant to be devotional and to answer questions that Christians constantly raise, I think, within their spirits, within their hearts. And that is, how do I stay motivated in the Christian life? How do I get out into my day for Christ, especially to evangelize when I've had a bad morning? Let's take a test. You set your alarm. You wake up in the morning before the alarm. You want to get in the Bible. you've, You've been in a week of good Bible reading. You're following your plan. You read the word of God. The birds are singing. The cool air is, you know, flowing. It's a little windy outside, but it's been warm and you're just flying. Do you feel really engaged and ready to evangelize and say, man, I can meet people and be Christ to people? Let's take another scenario. The day where you wake up, you hear the alarm, you're dreading, the, you're, you basically re-engage with the thoughts you had going to sleep, which were worrisome thoughts. You wake up with those cares. You don't want to get in the Bible. You hit the snooze alarm about three more times, and then you just dive out of bed, get in the shower, rush off to work, and you're at work suddenly, and you're trying to figure out what happened to you. Are you any more or less equipped to evangelize at that moment? The answer to that question in your own heart can reveal something to you in terms of what you think you are in terms of success in evangelism or not. Or, put another way, 
Are you someone who relies on the gospel alone to drive you into his mission and ministry? Here's a couple quotes from the, the discipline of grace that I love. It's this, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That second quote might be more applicable than the first. We're never beyond the reach of God's grace as believers, but we are never also, no matter how well we're grading ourselves in terms of our personal performance, we are never beyond the need for God's grace. Do you see that? We need God. It's what we just sang together. Oh, how I need you, Lord. And the way to calibrate our thinking in terms of our need is to engage afresh the gospel and what the gospel means for our daily lives and motivation. And that's Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is one of the most gospel-rich, succinct passages on the gospel that I know of in the New Testament. And it drives Christian believers into service, specifically into a submission evangelism. Say, how do those two things go together? Submitting yourselves within a culture, within a workplace, within a home situation, a family situation, within a strained relationship situation, a gospel submission. Not just, yes, sir, yes, sir, I got it, pro forma submission. I mean a heart attitude subordination, a a Jesus-modeled submission that shocks people into saying, what in the world is your problem? (laughs) Why are you this person in contrast to all others? Look at Titus 2, verse 10, just looking up. There's a lot of commands that lead up to Titus 2, verse 10. Older men being sober-minded, older women being reverent behavior, training younger women to be self-controlled and pure, to obey the word of God, submissive to husbands. Younger men being self-controlled. You see all of those? Verse 8, having sound speech, a model of good works. Bond servants, which are willing servants who are Christian servants in that culture, being submissive to masters or authority figures in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. There's that submission. Then verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That they may wear, adorn gospel doctrine of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You either wear the flesh as you work, as you live in the culture, or you wear the gospel. And people see it. You have gospel clothes on today. Who are you? What makes you different? That's adorning the doctrine of God. To adorn is the word cosmion or cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmetics. It's what people see about you. And cosmos can refer to the orderliness, like the orderliness of our solar system. You're ordered in the gospel and you're wearing that. This is not wearing Jesus junk. This is not wearing crosses per se. This is not stickers on your car. I couldn't put a sticker on my car that represents Christ because of how badly I drive. And anybody that has driven with me knows I'm a very poor driver. I've got good instincts and I played a lot of video games. That's why I'm alive today. However, you know, 
Jesus license plates, Jesus paraphernalia, that all can be well and good and it can work for you. But that's not what we're talking about here in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 is talking about something that is the aroma of Christ on you in the workplace. It's, it's the saltiness in your speech that, that makes people, you know, kind of t- want to taste something about you. They're asking you questions about your life. It's a consistency. It's a doctrine on display. It's actions that speak louder than words. Now, let me be quick to say that I do not believe in a wordless gospel. I do not believe that the pulpit should be replaced by the barbecue. Now, I think that there is a place for having people over, evangelizing people, lifestyle evangelism, neighbor evangelism, workplace evangelism, but your works and how you live should lead to words and what you say. Why do I say that? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's not enough just to be a do-gooder. Jesus was not just a do-gooding person. He, he lived it and spoke. It's life and doctrine that go together harmoniously and beautifully as DNA strands that are power-packed to infuse spiritual life into people's hearts. Verses 3 through 7 is the gospel treasure of chapter 3. We're going to unpack that next week. We're not unpacking that this morning. But I do want you to learn about the tall task that Titus was given in terms of what he was asking churches to do in verses 1 and 2. Titus was a friend of Paul's. Titus was a colleague of Paul's and he was given a strong mission in a very raucous culture as a church leader on the island of Crete. When I think of the island of Crete, I think of, I don't know, I've never been to Crete. And so, you know, there could be some, some disconnects here, but based on the way that the Cretans are described in chapter one by the poet Epimenides, and I'm going to read some of that, it seems like kind of a wild west town, at least during those days. Paul, you know, he had gone through some uh, tumultuous uh, waters when he was going to Roman imprisonment. He was on a ship and it was, and he was, he found shelter under Crete, but he also knew of Crete evangelistically. And he went there as a missionary on his third missionary journey he was taking Timothy places and he left Timothy on Ephesus to, to, to take that church over. And that's where first and second Timothy come from and those pastoral epistles. This is how you do church. Well, he also left his good friend Titus on the island of Crete, several miles in the Mediterranean beneath Athens in that Greco-Roman culture, that mythological, that myth-rich culture where they worshiped gods in the pantheon. That was this Greek culture that Crete represented. And that's where Titus was to bring up something that doesn't look like evangelism, but is evangelism. That's verses one and two. You know, evangelism is not a program. It's never a program in scripture. It's never a curriculum in scripture. Evangelism is living the gospel and teaching all that Jesus has commanded to people. It's making a a disciple by sowing seed, or coming upon someone where seed's already been sown, or finding that person that's already pre-cooked, ready to microwave, you give them the gospel, you go, wow, I'm such a great evangelist, because that person believed, and I gave the message. And the Bible says, no, some sow, so that grandma that's been praying for that person for 
28 years who gets no credit for this, right? And some water at mama that was sitting there desperate for her teenager to come to Christ, begging God, freaking out, and then some harvest. And that's the Sunday school teacher that just gets to skim the cream, right? But the hard work of evangelism doesn't stop there. Once they believe, evangelism turns into discipleship where you're growing them in the word of God and teaching them. This is what evangelism is. It's not a technique. It's not door-to-door salesmanship. It's not shouting from a street corner. Those things actually, once you're over the shame of, you know, standing up and, you know, the, I say shame, the embarrassment perhaps of standing up and, and preaching in that way. Once you're beyond that embarrassment, that's actually easy work because people are kind of coming and going. The hard work is where you're really digging in on personal levels, risking relationships. That's where it's difficult or risking family tension, or risking things within the workplace. You could be risking a promotion by being overtly Christian in your environment. Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And now listen to this parallel passage and see uh, see what's unique about this evangelism style. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's the unique thing about those two passages in evangelism. Both are showing a Christian who's modeling Christ and then being asked. Now, Does that let you off the hook in terms of evangelism? You say, well, all I need to do is just show up to work and I'm a Christian. I'm not denying the faith, so I'm good. No, these passages are saying that you should expect, you should anticipate someone seeing that you are a Christian and then someone asking you about it. Hey, where do you work? Well, you know, I I work at Anchorage Grace Church. Boom, I'm into an evangelistic conversation. You should have something like that about you, you know, that connects you to the church, that connects you to the Bible, that connects you to core convictions that you believe where within conversations, they become salty, they become natural, they become organic. And then you're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life has to live, be lived, commensurate to your message though. And that's a challenge. Well, let's look at verse one First of all, because what we have here are reminders. We have seven reminders in verses one and two. And then in verse eight, we have Paul being insistent. So he's reminding and he's insisting. But there are seven reminders given in verses one and two. And the first reminder is a to be verb. It's to be submissive. Remind them. Just like we're to remember the Lord Jesus when we take communion, we're to remember where we, where we came from as, as Christians. It's the discipline of remembering, and it's the church being reminded to be submissive to rulers. The word submission is hupotasso. It's to literally rank yourself under your superior. You say, I do that every day. I'm not bucking the system. That's not what I mean. That's not what scripture means. Scripture means to rank yourself under a superior in humility. It's that humility. It's not being a a man or woman of independence. It's being a person who is, for God's sake, because you see the Lord in this, 
saying, Lord, please let me win this leader to Christ. Let me win this colleague, this person who's parallel to me on the workplace to Christ by being humble enough to be a servant-hearted relationship to this person. Never forget this man who was a deacon in a former church uh, where I served. He said that he had a rough relationship with his boss. It was just tense and he didn't know why. And he was an auto mechanic by trade. He ultimately owned his own business. But before he owned his own um, business, he worked in a business where they repaired cars. And he said every morning as a way to try to evangelize and win his boss's affection, he would show up at work before his boss. He would open up all the gates, everything. It wasn't his job to do that, but he did all of that. He got the coffee going and would go up to his boss and serve him a cup of coffee. You say, is that practical evangelism? That's winning someone to Christ. If you are doing it in the name of Christ, not out of self-promotion, not for a raise, but out of Christian love and Christian witness. It's being a servant. It's being a servant coming under. And there are temptations to say, you know, I don't want to do this. Uh, The Lord wouldn't want me to exert the temple of the Holy Spirit in this way. I'm too spiritual for that. Um, He wouldn't want me to submit to a sinner like that. That person's so awful. He wants me to flee that person, be away from that person. Um, Perhaps you're just saying, look, the world is such a fallen culture. Nobody cares about anybody in the workplace. So why should I be any different? I'll just follow the world's way and just do it in performance. Or you could say the situation's so extraordinary, it's so awful, I'm off the hook using logic. Well, let's see how bad it was on the island of Crete. Let's see what Paul was asking Titus to get in order in churches and tell them to do. And some background will help us with that. Turn to Titus 1 and look at verse 4. This is Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul loved Titus. He called him a brother. He called him a partner, a fellow worker. He mentioned Titus's name nine times in 2 Corinthians. He planted churches with Paul in the third missionary journey. He was the one who came back to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, and refreshed Paul's heart when Paul was in prison saying, the Corinthians have repented. Do you remember that? 2 Corinthians 7. So Titus was a good friend of Paul's and Paul respected him so much that he left him on an island called Crete. (laughs) He left him in charge. Verse five, look at it. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, a plurality of elders in every town as I directed you. So this is church planning with several different churches with each having a plurality of elders. That means that this letter, Titus chapters one, two, and three serve as a blueprint to figure out how to do church. What church is like you have elders, deacons, servants, and people fulfilling all kinds of roles. The church is formal in structure, and it's also organic in a living um, dimension. The island of Crete, it's a large Mediterranean island bounding the Aegean Sea. Um, It's a 3,219 square miles. It's got 1,046 miles of coastline. And according to just a quick search, uh, population of the largest city, Heraklion, um, um, 623,000 people are there. 
so it it just has some parallels and uniquenesses to this place, I think, in terms of, you know, just it's on its own. It's its own thing, right? Here in Alaska, we're our own group. We're supposed to be here. We're part of a church. We're, we're part of a mission. We're supposed to be submitting to in a culture on such a level that begs questions and, and brings people into the kingdom. That place was pagan, largely pagan. It was a Greek uh, a Greek populated island. It was called the birthplace of Zeus in the International Bible Encyclopedia. It was a half legend, legendary, half historical King Minos, who is said to be the son of Zeus. So they had this sort of legend that was living through a, a king that had derived um, from Zeus and had um, wisdom like Zeus and mythological powers that constituted these um, Cretan cities. So you also had a Jewish population there, a large Jewish population that was influential and protected by Roman um, leadership, by Rome. And I said before, Paul had been exposed to this place, but he also had a love for it and left Titus there to set churches up. That's evangelism often is church planting, putting churches in place. A poet is quoted by Paul in verse 12, and his name is Epimenides, and he lived 600 years uh, before Christ. But look at verse 12 of chapter 1. One of the Cretans, this is Epimenides, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So this is the attitude of that culture. To Cretanize back then meant to lie. You're, you're a Cretan if you're, if you're lying. That was an accusation word. And so in the midst of this, Paul was telling Titus to tell churches to adorn the doctrine of God and to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The word obedient means to listen. It's obeying from the heart. It's to have a listening spirit. You're not going through the motions. Evangelism is building relationships in the context of the providence of God. You say, who am I supposed to reach for Christ? How am I supposed to reach people with the gospel? Well, look around and just see who the Lord has laid in your lap. Why wouldn't he lay people in your lap to reach, to preach to, to live a life in front of, to strike up conversations with it's a posture of saying, I want to be ready for every good deed. I want to be prepared for everything that could possibly happen in my day that could support this ministry. It's a life of divine appointments that the Lord gives to us. It's good works. You see that word at the end of verse one, ready for every good work. You know, we're not saved by works. We're saved by the work of Christ, but we're not saved by our works. For by grace we save through faith and that not of ourselves. Faith isn't a work. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're not supposed to boast in works. We're not supposed to be arrogantly looking for things we can do to find favor with God or keep ourselves propped up spiritually. We're to divest ourselves of that attitude. But at the same time, Ephesians 2 10 says that God has prepared good works for us to walk in. He prepared those works before us. 
That's right after Ephesians 2.9 is 2.10. And people forget 2.10. They forget about the works that God has prepared. Well, what does that matter? Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in teaching, integrity, dignity. 2.14, Jesus who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. What are the good works? It's these things. It's the submission evangelism, good works. It's the mom being submissive in a household with children. You're not submitting to kids. Kids come under you. But with your attitude, you're serving children to lead them to Christ, right? That's evangelism. Titus 3.1, Titus 3.8 speaks of being devoted to good works. Titus 3.14, devote yourself to good works. Ephesians 2.10, I was... Quoting it before, we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, your faith without these works flowing out is a dead faith. A real faith has these works that flow out of them. That's how you vindicate genuine living faith. You want this life. You want to see this happen. It's the opposite of unbelievers. Titus 1, back to that, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. If we're to glorify God, we have to have the Holy Spirit to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can't give glory to God in works. You can't win the world to Christ with your life without the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a defiled person, if you're trying in your own flesh to drum up strength to do works, it won't work. It doesn't work. You're not fit for it. You're unfit. You're disqualified from doing this kind of life and ministry. The people in this culture, many of whom were unbelievers were described in verse 10 of chapter one for there are many, there are many in this culture who are insubordinate. Do you see that? Insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Even people who were religious, there are Jews who are the circumcision party. They're saying, I'm in, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian because I've been religious, but their heart hasn't changed yet. They might have done something outwardly, but nothing inwardly. God has to change your heart for this to be effective. And so when your heart isn't changed, you're insubordinate. They were even attacking the churches at that point in their insubordination, needing to be called out. Ultimately, in Revelation 20, at the great right throne judgment, God himself will look at everyone who is an unbeliever and He will judge them according to what they had done, according to their works. Aragon means works, and that's the word there, what they've done. I gave this illustration um, just a couple weeks ago, so at risk of repeating myself, at least I'm self-aware, but it is something that comes to mind, and it was a strong early impression of my Christian experience in terms of what not to do and what actually you're supposed to do. I became a Christian when I was 17, 
Um, I was, I would be the model example of someone who prayed hard for me and wanted me to come to genuine faith in Christ. I played the game. I lived the lie. I was kind of a duplicitous teenager. That's what I was. I had Christian school friends at our church Christian school. I had friends that were down the street at the rival Christian schools um, who were unbelievers. I went to a public school. I was friends with that crowd. The church youth group friends that both went to youth group and my Public school were the worst influences that I could have had, but I was accepted in this um, sort of quasi-spiritual, hypocritical life of duplicity. And then my mom's prayers and my dad's prayers began to open my heart providentially. I went to Sunday school. I said, I'm not going to go back. I'm now 17. I'm not going back. My dad said, go back one more time. I went back. And then the Sunday school teacher, who was a lay teacher in my youth group, adopted a classroom of rebellious boys and took them into his room and basically preached the gospel to us and laced us up and down with it. Didn't know he was doing um, evangelism, but he basically said, look, if you don't want to be here, just leave the room. He was an ex-convict, by the way. That really makes the story fun. Um, He had met Christ in prison, and he became our lay Sunday school teacher. I don't know how all that works, but that was the deal. He was about five foot three, and his name was Rod, and we called him Hot Rod. And he would pace back and forth and preach to us and say, look, if you get a problem with what I said, just meet me out in the parking lot afterwards, and we'll discuss it, okay? (laughs) Man to man. One time he literally jumped up on our tables and he was preaching the gospel back and forth. Well, three of us became believers in that time. Probably others did, but all three of us in that class became full-time pastors. And it was, it was amazing. And, you know, some sow, some water and some harvest. Well, after that, I I went to college and wanted to work a, um, a construction job and swing a hammer for a summer in hot, sunny Virginia beach. And so I knew a guy who owned a, a, framing crew company and he put me on a framing team and I learned how to move wood. And as long as I was moving wood, I was fine. But ultimately I, I moved up and advanced to wear the tool belt and work some of the tools. And, um, you know, I knew enough to, to then, you know, swing hammers and, and do a little bit of work. But a buddy of mine and I were both on the same framing crew and we wanted to witness and share our faith to this construction crew. And so as we would hit our thumbs or we would, we would hit the thing, we would sing hymns out loud sort of belligerently and you know praise the lord how you doing over there you still got your thumb you know that kind of arrogant evangelism didn't go very well the the crew chief ultimately took me aside laced me out took my wrist and took the nail gun and said you want to play jesus or do you want to work and he would take my hand sometimes and hammer around it it was pretty aggressive you know i don't know how that works in um you know laws today or whatever but You kind of just go back to work. Ultimately, we begin to take a different heart approach, be humble, quiet, work harder than talking. And during our lunch hour, the different crew members would say to a man, my wife has been praying for me. My mother's been praying for me. My mom is praying for me right now. She knows that you are Christians on the crew and our evangelism began to take root and, and it began to work because we were working more than we were speaking and letting them ask us the questions as we responded accordingly. That's evangelism. That's how it's supposed to work. Some of the greatest experiences I have had have been in the jobs I've had that have not been full-time ministry 
working security, doing different things where you just get to know people. And ultimately people, as they begin to trust you, open up because they have nowhere else to go, right? No one will listen to them. Then when you actually have something to say to them, it's profound. And all of what the world tries to paint in terms of the agnosticism, the atheism, the, you know, there is no God and you're a complete fool to believe the Bible goes away because you actually have a Bible that's a living book and you're giving real answers to real life questions. And all of that chatter out there just goes away because the word of God is powerful. It's the same thing that happens whenever there's a catastrophic event a world earth changing event, suddenly God, Jesus, and the Bible comes to the fore because he is real and he's alive. Back to our passage, Titus chapter 3, submissive to rulers, obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then verse 2, to speak evil of no one. This is to not blaspheme anyone. That's the original word, to malign no one, to not curse or slander anyone. You ever been in a situation where you thought you were being slandered? You asked them about it and they weren't slandering you. You're actually surprised, aren't you? It's because the Puritans said that gossip is like candy. It's something that people enjoy to roll around in their mouths like um, a gumdrop. Or to avoid this at all cost. And you avoid gossiping to win people to Christ. When you gossip is so common, it's so easy to gossip. It's so easy to rationalize gossiping, right? Somebody says, well, do you, what do you think about this? We're just talking generically, and then suddenly it's targeting a person. If you're tearing someone down, that's gossip. When you don't tear someone down, it's shocking within our culture. It's evangelism within our culture. People are surprised when you go, oh. and I'm not saying we've been perfect in that, right? But when you repent of it, when you don't do it, when you reign in the tongue, it's powerful, It's as equally powerful as destructive is our tongues when they're let loose, James 3 says. So you're avoiding that at all costs. You're avoiding quarreling. You're not someone who enjoys getting into a fight. You're not contentious. You're not entertained by the fight. You're not entertained by the rush of debates. Being quarrelsome is wrong. I've been... I I remember quarreling early in my Christian life, in my early 20s. I would go into, we would go into a pharmacy, my wife and I would, and there was this Jewish man who was there and he knew, you know, a lot about the Old Testament, the Bible, and he was a thinker. And it was enjoyable as a, a young seminary student to sort of mix it up with him and theologize and philosophize. But it got contentious one time and kind of, oh, you know, and, and tense. And so suddenly healthy banter turned into argumentation. And as we left, Judy was like, you know, that, that wasn't good. Something was bad about that, you know, and and I remember being convicted about that. That's what this is. We should avoid quarreling and by the opposite, be gentle. That means showing humility. It's being willing to yield. It's showing preference. It flows right into the next one, which says show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's, It's the attitude where you're at Costco and you want to get in line and the line is like, you know, 50 feet long now because it's our only big box store in town and you're wanting to get in there and, and you just go, you know what? I, you know, you don't say all this, but I know we were both racing up for the, for pole position, but just, just go right ahead. And they're so convicted because they wanted to nudge you out of the way. They wanted to take you out with their cart that they're like, oh, oh, no, no, you go. No, no, you go. And you just, you know, with no attitude, you just defer. But that attitude is evangelism, and those opportunities come up all the time. 
It's showing kindness, courtesy, not just to people who are stronger or outrank you, but to everyone. Wealthier, poor, it doesn't matter. It's putting doctrine on display. Warren Wiersbe said, good works is not religious works in the church, not necessarily singing in the choir or holding office. It's, it's serving unsaved neighbors and being helpful in the community. It's having a reputation for assisting those in need. It's babysitting. This is what Warren said, babysitting to relieve a harassed young mother as, a, as just a spiritual work. And it's as spiritual or more than passing out a gospel tract, he said. How do we get motivated to do this? Well, verses three through seven are the motivation. Without verses three through seven, you really don't have the fuel to do these things. Verse eight says, this is a trustworthy saying. The trustworthy statement that word trustworthy is used all through First and Second Timothy and Titus whenever it's a gospel passage. It's trustworthy. It's something that you can put all the eggs of, you know, into your basket over that statement, First Timothy 1.15. It's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Second um, Timothy 2.11 This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. These are gospel statements. There's several of them. So verse eight is Paul saying, look, look at the gospel saying of verses three through seven. And I want you to insist on these things. What does he want Titus to insist? Insist on the commands of verses one and two. Insist on lifestyle evangelism. Insist on that hard attitude, but insist on that in light of the gospel. Gospel has to melt the heart to have an attitude like this in the workplace. No amount of work, um, pay salary for going into a situation, no amount of money accounts for doing this kind of work. You will not do this kind of work for money. You won't. You won't. Because it's a spiritually motivated heart attitude of submission and he says, insist, bulomai. He actually repeats that word twice. Bulomai, say, diabebusthai. It's, I'm saying this with, with a force to, to put it on the will of the people, to assert it, to say it as forceful as Titus 2, 2.15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That same kind of force is here. Insist on this. What what is he insisting on? He's insisting on the gospel and gospel obedience just as a teaser to next week. And we'll unpack these verses next week. Look at verse five, three words. He saved us. You want to be motivated in the Christian life? Listen to these baptisms about how God saves people. And remember your salvation as they give their testimony, superimpose that on your testimony and melt. And then go evangelize.